This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with psychotherapist and author Ross Rosenberg about the human magnet syndrome, self-love deficit disorder, trauma, addiction, narcissism, and his life. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Ross Rosenberg. How are you? Brandon, despite the many technical difficulties that I've shared with you that we conveniently are leaving out of this show, I am fantastic. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This is this. Well, thank you for coming. And I forgot to say that, as you said, my name is Brandon. I am Brandon Chadwick. And today, you know, Ross Rosenberg, some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may not have heard of him. I'm about to read you a long list here. And I don't know if anyone has seen uh, Rocky Four. And when when Apollo Creed is coming to the ring, he had so many nicknames. Uh, so so here we here we go. I'm about to go down a list here of, of Ross Rosenberg, everyone. You are a... A psychotherapist, educator, expert, witness, and author. You have written the book, uh, The Human Magnet Syndrome, which I think a lot of people have read in our community. You've sold 145,000 units of that. You created the term self-love deficit disorder, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people have heard the term codependency and you were like, no. Nah. I'm not having anything to do with that. And, you know, our show is interesting in the sense of how we try to have people understand what is going on in their life as well and not just to look at the abuser and look at the abuse tactics that are being used. But why are these tactics being used? used why do they work on you specifically and why those tactics may not work on somebody else and indirectly we use a lot of your concepts at first i didn't even know that i was even doing that until someone said hey you have to, you have to go <laughs> read this book you have to understand what ross rosenberg is doing and really get to the nitty gritty instead of these little ideas that you have, here's someone who's really right. drilled these things down. And you also have a huge YouTube channel 
and everyone should just go watch your stuff on YouTube as well. We'll have all of the links in our show notes. But, you know, today I wanted to get to know you because there has to be a reason why you got started in specifically in this space to begin with when you were discussing codependency, when we're talking about self-love uh, deficit and just because of what we're talking about, you know, narcissism comes into play, narcissistic personality disorder, cluster B personality disorders, domestic violence, and all these things are offshoots eventually of these things that you're discussing. So let's just get into you, who Ross Rosenberg is, how did you get here, and, you know, where did your path begin? And then not just your path, where did the opening occur? Um, where the bottom fell out of everything. Wow. <laughs> if I really, really wanted to answer that question, I think we'd have like a, like a, a six hour episode here, but I'm, I'll give you the short version. I, um, I always wanted, you know, to make a difference uh, in the world. I think, uh, well, I'm, I've been in the field 35 years, and I remember it as a teenager. I had this, you know, this moment where a therapist helped me, and you know, it said, "Hey, you know, you got really good listening skills. You should be a therapist when you grow up." And I thought, "Wow, that's what I want to do because I want to help other people." Because I was a really uh, struggling kid, and I put my sights onto that. And fast forward, I became a therapist, and I had no idea at the time other than the fact that my professor at Boston University in grad school drilled in my head, you have to get into therapy if you want to be a good therapist. And he asked us all to raise our hand, and I, my hand just shot up, and no one else raised their hand. And that's when I realized that there are so many people in our career field, or in, in the, psycho, uh, the mental health or the uh, mental health career field, that have not taken a look at themselves um, well enough to understand that our tool, the, what we use to exact change, to facilitate change, is ourselves, both the conscious and conscious levels, uh, uh, elements of it. And so I've always had that point of view. And I've been a great fan and um, a recipient of wonderful moments of growth insight because of my therapy. Fast forward to my first marriage. It was a very, very difficult marriage, and I experienced a lot of abuse. And I wouldn't know until much later that um, I believe uh, she had a personality disorder, um, some form of personality disorder. And I was beaten down, crushed. And all I knew was at the point when I proposed to her, there was this strong push this, that said, run, 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 run. And it actually took me a couple hours to get the words up. Well, I didn't know what that was till later. Fast forward, um, we divorced. I, I could not take the harm, the abuse, and selfishness. And all of a sudden, six months later, when I thought I was healed, and remember, I'm a therapist. So, you know, even, even a therapist can have their head in the clouds or buried in the sand. 
Oh yeah, we've had, we've had um, many therapists as guests on our Survivor Story uh, episodes, and I like having those episodes just so we can show everyone that even if you are educated in psychology, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a CEO, you could, you know, be driving like a, a delivery truck. It doesn't matter. And for me, when the, the when the therapists Absolutely. are on the show, it really shows everyone that it can happen. To everyone because they're the ones that are supposed to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, and and, and there is no correlation. Uh, from income level to education um, um, with codependency or what I call self-love deficit disorder. So I meet my soulmate. So uh, let me quote that air quote soulmate fall in love. And in a year's time, I am dealing with a horribly impaired, um, selfish um, narcissist. And just like the first one, I loved her. I loved her with what I thought was love. And after uh, a couple more years, I couldn't take the pain, the misery, and the harm that um, came my way because of her. And so I divorced her, and I was shattered. Uh, I was depressed, and I fell apart because I knew something was wrong with me. And I did everything I could to come out of it. And that included therapy. And then one day a therapist said to me and said, you know, Ross, and this was the moment I think my life changed. The problem with you is that you fall in love with the same woman who has a different face. And then I later said, you have this broken picker. And it was at that moment, the world shifted. It wasn't a problem of these mean, nasty narcissists that I just can't see or I'm blind to. Um, it was me. I kept falling in love with a certain type of person. And I dove into that. I read books. I um, found really good therapists. And it was somewhere after about a year, I started to put together this idea that people fall in love because there's a match, a matching of personality types, the selfish, self-centered person can only dance with a dance partner who is the opposite, giving, altruistic, compassionate, and empathetic. And the only way that relationship is going to come together through chemistry is by this opposite energy, this magnetic magnetic energy that pulls them together. And so um, I started uh, putting that together, I became a professional trainer, eventually wrote a book, and then I got into my next marriage. And I still was sorting it out, but I knew it, and it happened again. And that's when I doubled down, and I started to put every ounce of psychological, emotional energy into coming up with excellence. And that was when I started my YouTube videos. I started writing a book. Um, and so it was the misery the shame, the loneliness, the, the, the pain uh, that every person who is a codependent, who I, who I now refer to as self-love deficient, from this point on, um, goes through if they should leave the narcissist or the narcissist should leave them. 
And it was because I had some little part of me that was healthy, that was healthy enough to finally say, the heck with this, I'm out of here, which a lot of SLDs can't. I would be out of a relationship in this broken state. And that is when everything that I figured out, I would start writing down, I would create videos. And in a way it was my therapy. And then I would bring that to my, my counselor, my counselor, I would bring that to my psycho. I would bring that to my clients in my psychotherapy practice. And it was, um, it was uh, this watershed moment in my life. Meanwhile, I was dealing with incredibly dysfunctional elements in my family, which I, I don't think is necessary for me to go into, but, and I started to recognize the parallel between what was going on with me, with my attraction to narcissists, what my dad would say, the soulmate uh, who turns into the cellmate and uh, the, the soulmate of your dreams becomes your cellmate of your nightmares. And, you know, I started to figure that out. And then I wanted to know where did this come from? And that is when I started putting, um, you know, two and two together to find out that my family um, was a crucible of dysfunction and my parents and the way they raised us created codependence and narcissists. And that culminated in my book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, which explains why codependents or SLDs always fall in love with narcissists and why narcissists always fall in love with codependents. It is this unconscious from, uh, attraction or chemistry, this familiarity that that one person, right? And it comes from our childhood and the way we were born. And that led me years later to developing a new name for codependency. I call self-love deficit disorder and a whole theory and a treatment program to solve it, to cure it, which is, um, and that is kind of where I am now is that I, I use my own experiences, pain, suffering, and whatever strength I could muster to survive, not to survive, but to fix the problem. And the problem was me, the codependent, the SLD. So everything that I do, whether I'm talking about narcissists or I'm talking about codependency or self-love deficit disorder, it's always focused on taking responsibility, um, but never, ever making excuses for the people that hurt you and, and holding them responsible too. So when it comes to codependency versus self-love deficit, you make a distinction between the two. You don't think codependent because you think codependency comes from the, uh, I think it was the world of addiction. Was that correct? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you're asking me this question because I am in the process of writing the third edition of my book. It, every five years I rewrite it and I am just rewrote the chapter that has this answer. <laughs> and it's, and again, um, it keeps progressing as, as my mental health and my understanding progresses. I, when I was codependent and I didn't even know it, the term Codependency meant so many things. Um, originally, it meant the partner of an alcoholic or an addict. And then when it kind of transitioned into meeting someone who is a giver, um, a, a lover, you know, someone who is always patient and taking advantage of, um, it didn't have any teeth. It, it didn't explain 
why people, codependents, fall in love with narcissists, why, what, it didn't explain why that happens. It, ex- it blamed unintentionally the codependent because of your character, your habits, your thinking, your lack of boundaries. So you were a bad person. And I quote that. And, and, and it didn't offer, it neither offered an explanation or a solution. So when I wrote the human magnet syndrome, the very first version in 2012, published in 2013, I felt, I felt through it that I had this mandate that I had to redefine codependency and I had to explain exactly what it is so people can now understand why they. And I simplified the definition from what would be in any book, you know, 25 uh, pages or a whole chapter or even a book to like two paragraphs. A codependent is a person who in a relationship predictably and reflexively falls in love with another and they give all the love, respect, caring, and trust with hopes that it's reciprocal. It's not because the, um, because they choose the narcissist and that's explained um, um, in my book also. And despite the inequity and or the, the unfair distribution of it, they stay in a relationship. Even more simply, a codependent is a person who gives all the love, respect, caring, and trust in a relationship with hopes that it is reciprocated. It's not. And they stay in a relationship. And if you can accept that as a definition, then every type of codependent there is. And there are so many variations because of personality types and all the things I talk about in human. And that changed, I believe, the world. Because now we had a simple definition that could um, explain something that could be seen in every type of codependent. And I didn't like that term despite my changes. And um, soon after my human magnet syndrome was published, I kept wondering and thinking I need to come up with a new name because I, I actually really despised the name codependent because it had so many stigmas. And I came up, I literally almost fell out of my seat. I was so excited. Kind of like when I came up with the name human magnet syndrome of the word self-love deficit disorder. And in the name was a description of the primary problem for which codependents or now people who are self-love deficient would make the choices that would describe their self-love deficit disorder. Or So back in December, I myself was, I got through like a real big battle of codependency or self-love uh, deficit mm-hmm. in December-ish. I got into a real funk with it and I went back to right. my workbooks and all of those things to just start concentrating on myself. And what happened one day when I was, I was really struggling and I was sitting in a chair in my room and it was like, a it's a, everyone, this is going to be really weird, but it was like a, I saw like a vision of my codependent self coming at me and it was very clear and it was really ugly looking version of me and very distorted. Uh, 
And it scared me so much. It was like a real, it was like a jump scare in a horror film. And my, I, my heart just went poof, and like, I could feel it like just skip and pop and like turn. And or right. at least in my mind, that's what happened. And at that point, like a calmness kind of came over me and I was able to feel it in a way which I'd never been able to feel it before. I'm an overthinker. And right. so to feel something in my body is uh, unusual. And when that happened, I really started to think of these things in a different way or at least in a a way where you know you said it can manifest in so many different ways with different people it's and i was like i for me i just started being like okay it manifests in this way with like this person but it can manifest and look something completely different when i'm interacting with another person uh you know this i can be codependent on things not just people and um what is what like and then it came back to you know being a self-love deficit person is when I think of um, addiction and, and things along those lines, that's a codependency. That's a self-love deficit in, in a way as well. I'm trying to fill something, a, a deficit in me. And as someone who sat there and be like, okay, what what else am I doing? And I started to think about, well, why am I doing things and why am I continuing these things if they're hurting me? And to me, right. it all started coming back to um, fear and fear being the biggest thing. Right. So a fear of what? Fear of what? Fear. Well, there's so many different aspects of a human being. Um, okay, okay, no, 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 no. We're not going to. Okay, yeah, so I, I am going to suggest, yeah. and, and I'm going to hold my comments, of course, because I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm going to suggest it's fear of being alone and unloved, um, and I'll explain that later. And if it doesn't fit, that's fine. Okay, I know, like, um, with fear of, you know, my Enneagram is, is a type 6 um, my biggest issue is security. So for the most part, it's um, security, feeling secure, feeling that someone is reliable on, on the other end. So the, the opposite of security is insecurity and not having. So, so it's this fear of losing security, which is actually really common for SLDs or codependents. But please, please continue. Okay, so that's where I, I started. Is about, and I was like, okay. If I'm, um, if I'm concentrating so much on somebody else, I'm losing out on mm -hmm. myself. Is is what I started to be like. Really start to hammer home. I I, I just sometimes you just clicks and you and you get it. But for me, uh, you know, security, reliability, um, knowing, um, you know, it, um communicating properly becomes part of that whole equation. Um, and, right. and just that could be a whole string kind of going down the lines of like, I never yeah. learned how to communicate properly. Um, so communicating becomes a difficult thing, even though I want it, but I don't know how. Um, and, but security as a whole would be security over love. So 
Um, I'm glad you said that. So there's a lot of things I want to touch on. Um, I created a, um, a, I created a, not only a whole program and different treatment techniques, but one of the ones that I'm most proud of is what I call my hitch uh, trauma resolution integration method. And, um, and what I explain in that is that we identify the trauma that is responsible for SLDD codependency in our bodies because trauma, and, and now I'm going to just actually take a little bit of a turn and I'm going to come back. Um, and if I don't, please remind me of, of, of your, the body trauma is so after the human magnets, as I explained, I created the term self-love deficit disorder. And then I wanted to create, because what I, there doesn't need to be these really complicated explanations unless it's necessary. And I came up with this, what I believe was a simple explanation for what causes SLDD. And if you can imagine a, um, a pyramid at the foundation is attachment trauma. Every SLD, every codependent I know, everyone has in their childhood experienced a trauma in their the whole span of their childhood because of a narcissistic parent and a codependent parent uh, of not being conditionally loved and all the harm that happens because of being raised by narcissists. From attachment trauma comes a formation of core shame, which is this fundamental belief that you're only good enough if you can help another person take care of another person. And that if people knew who you really were, you wouldn't be lovable. So there's this fundamental um, feeling of inadequacy and brokenness. So from core shame is this existential disease, which I call pathological loneliness. It's this bone-aching feeling of, of loneliness that will precede a relationship or it will come after it. That if you are not in a relationship, you feel the searing conscious pain of the shame and the trauma. From that is the addiction what I call SLDD addiction or codependency addiction. It is the compulsive um, um, search for a, a way to get rid of that pain of loneliness. And the only thing that does that is a relationship. It is an addiction to the relationship. And because of the human magnet syndrome and what I described, why narcissists are always attracted to SLDs or codependents, that relationship is going to be with a narcissist. And then at the very top of, of, the, uh, of the pyramid is SLDD or codependency. And that's, what, that's all of the information you'll see in every other book about codependency. It's traits, it's explanations, the way you think, the way you feel, lack of boundaries, you know, insecurity. And so when you understand, when a person understands that SLDD is caused by deeper influences that are unconscious. Attachment trauma is blocked away, just like PTSD. Core shame is partially blocked away. And so when I created that explanation, people started to go, oh my gosh, now I understand why I keep falling in love with the, you know, the same person, but uh, with a different face. It goes back to my childhood and it starts to guide people toward what they need to do in order to unravel it. Then they understand about the core shame and the self-love deficit. And then they understand the pain of, of, of pathological loneliness is so deep that it drives people 
um, to stay with a narcissist, even if um, they're not. So back to what you said, that you had this watershed moment, this epiphany, because you felt something. Um, that was your attachment traumas that, of course, you don't know exactly what it is because you need to be in a certain type of therapy with a um, trauma, um, ex- um, a trauma, uh, I, there's, a, there's a term for it, but a trauma experienced therapist. And because of your intellect, your emotional intelligence, and your motive to like want to be a better version of yourself, you heard it, might not have understood what it was, and it puts you on a path of recovery. And so in that moment, I see you responding that invisible trauma and the, the shame and the need to be happy. So when you said to me your core issue was, and oh, um, I know what I said, but if, uh, you said security. Security. Um, and, and if, and of course, I would never do this, because, you know, you know, I'm on a podcast, but just say hypothetically, if we were in a therapy session and you were my client, I would just ask a bunch of questions and then I would easily get you to understand that security is about not being abandoned. It's about being loved unconditionally. It's about being accepted, not, you know, it's, it's, it's really about, um, that, that goes back to the, uh, the, the attachment trauma, the core shame, and the need for someone just And so I'm glad you explained it that way because my guess is so many people that have those body feelings, but they don't know what they mean because the connection to the memory is purposely hidden by the brain. I just had to say that. Hopefully, I didn't get too psychological on you, and hopefully, I don't know. Bring the psychology on to me. Let's fix me right now. Seriously, you've done you've done quite well, and and you're following and um, proves that. And plus, you know, you are one of the many people that actually get it intuitively. And when you get it intuitively, you don't need, um, you know a college degree, a, a, a um, advanced education degree or license, um, you are able to think about it in a way that promotes healing instead of just blaming. And that's my big thing is, is there's so many people out there on YouTube or in the podcast world that just want to just blame, blame, blame the narcissist and, and, and then present this whole victim thing. Um, and until someone says, it's because of what happened to me so long ago, I keep perpetrating that same want of love, security from my parents I didn't get, and I replicate that or perpetrate it on myself and unconsciously in the people that I choose. And that's actually chemistry. When we meet someone, say, you know, potential, you know, we're on a date or, you know, Tinder, and you get this feeling, this body feeling like, oh, my gosh, this person's perfect. Most of that, oh, my gosh, this person is perfect is the matching of that, um, the dance that's actually unconscious. You just know it, it feels right. So early on, you mentioned that there are some therapists that don't go to therapy to, uh, be, to begin with. And I, uh, a lot of people don't know, but I, I went to a coaching program, which I, what, I think it was like 10 years ago. 
and it, I went to this program specifically because the the program was tailor made to the individual, not and it wasn't right. for uh, and everyone got completely different coursework and you know you you had your practice subjects throughout the thing but the biggest practice subject was you and you were given coursework based upon what they felt was your biggest uh, deficiency and they we thought we were going there for the first week to like start learning they were watching us and learning about us right. to know exactly what our problems were going to be and by the end of the year, you had to try and like work on fixing yourself if you wanted to graduate. And I, I you know, for me, I was to me that was the most interesting thing. We we were trying to become self-correcting human beings. That that, right. that if something yeah. happened, and that was really the work. Like that was the work. You were the work, and if you could self-correct yourself in that, and based upon what you learned, try and teach that to other people to to at least if they run through a problem, how they can go back and figure out where the problem began and work them way, so they don't have to come and hang out with you anymore. And and uh, this adage I learned a long time ago: you can't see in others what you are blind to in yourself. If you're an alcoholic and you're a therapist and you're in denial of it, you won't see it. If you um, sadly were sexually abused as a child and you didn't deal with it, you won't see it in your clients. And so what you're talking about is um, sounds to me like um, a really good approach to teaching coaching by trying to understand and, and overcome your own uh, challenges that is going to lead you to being even a better coach, psychotherapist, or any type of healer or help. Yeah, and that helped me a lot with doing the show because if I didn't go through that, I might have gone down a route where I didn't start looking into what was going on with yeah. myself or the people on the show and understanding the psychology of everything, which makes a better show. So when it comes to you and you know, getting over that hump yourself, what was right. the most difficult thing for you to do um, as far as taking a look at yourself? What was the hardest thing to finally get through to yourself or to, I guess, get rid of that addiction? Or is it always with you and you have to do that work every day? I think one of the most crucial processes that happened to me was my willingness and ability to face the shame. Um, and I can think of several junctures in my life, one of which I looked at myself um, not so much um, um, direct in, in a mirror mirror, but look, looked at myself as closely as I could. And I started to understand that I was so desperate for something that I never had and was looking for it, which was love, respect, caring, or the opposite, not being abandoned or hurt, that I was picking the same type of people that did to me what I, what happened to me in my childhood. That, um, and we all know that, and you don't have to have, be, have a psycho, psychology degree to understand that if we had a healthy childhood, we tend to be healthier adults. And so it was looking at that and understanding 
and I say this for myself, and I don't like to use this word for others because it, it has a very sharp connotation, which I don't mean, but of seeing myself as broken and, and led by this shame um, and fear of being loneliness to heal some wound that was bigger than myself. And every um, relationship I sought to escape the pain. And it wasn't about being happy with good self-esteem and self-love. It was to get out of this loneliness and this shame. And once I admitted that to myself, I had, and then I get goosebumps, you know, as I'm talking about it, I had to reconcile my whole life that I had been, I had been filled with shame, self-doubt, um, self-love deficiency. And I was trying to get someone else to make me feel good. And I kept picking the people that did it. And when you're a therapist with 15, and I'm thinking I had 15 years, 20 years experience at that time, who has a good reputation, you know, everything's going well for him. And you realize how horribly broken you really are. That, that moment of shame was connected of being an imposter. And, and that goes back to me being that 17 year old. I wanted to be the real deal. I wanted to be someone who truly can help people heal. And that shame could have buried me. Um, or it could have done, or it could, I could go in the direction that happened to you is I could have motivated me to find a way for it to go away. And that the moment after my last marriage was the, was the, it was cataclysmic. It was the moment of brokenness that galvanized me to get to. And that is when I started creating my self-love deficit disorder, theoretical. Um, uh, well, actually, I call it self-love recovery as, as a whole. I created my self-love recovery program, and I created the pyramid, and I, and I created, through my own exploration, the understanding of what is wrong with us, and then connect it to what do we have to do to and. And so, yes, so I would have to say that was the moment um, when um, everything changed to the. And I say this to people, and I and I all the people that are listening is, you will survive if you allow yourself to see that which you're you feel you're not strong enough to accept. It's the only way, but do it with help. Don't do it by yourself. And that moment for you is, is that a moment where you get knocked down? I mean, that's a punch after that long a time, the idea of what you wanted to be when you're 17 and then waking up one day um, and realizing that you weren't there. And yeah. But it's worse than a punch. And it's it's interesting, you know, as a therapist who is very reflective, I am experiencing um, um, affect or emotions, which is good. I always want to, I always want to feel that when I talk about this to keep it real. But it's, a, it, it's really admitting 
I'm self-love deficient and that I'm desperately trying to find something to take it away and like an addiction. And self-love death disorder is addiction. I have a whole four-hour program just on that. You are looking for something to numb the pain, to make you feel good, and to make you not think of what causes the pain. And what you don't realize is you're picking something that's addictive by nature, and eventually you start to do it just to keep away from the pain, not for the pleasure anymore. And once I think and understood that it is the withdrawal, the, the withdrawal symptom of SLDD addiction or codependency addiction is pathologic. And I promise you, if you ask 10 SLDs, um, what did you feel like before you met um, your husband, your wife, your partner? And what did you feel like after? And they will talk at this horrible feeling of loneliness. That is the conscious level of the shame. And it is only the relationship that will make it go away. So either you go back to the narcissist because your brain makes you think that you love them, or you find the next narcissist because of the human magnet syndrome. And SLD is not going to fall in love with a healthy person. It just it doesn't happen it, and it doesn't work. So uh you have a big youtube channel and you have one video on there that has been viewed three and a half million times so can you tell us about uh, that video specifically and why it became so big yeah it's interesting because i never ever thought you know i started the whole youtube thing in 2011 and i was on i was unknowingly on the, you know the the the, the, the forefront of this whole thing about codependency narcissism thing before it became a big deal. And so I was just happy to get, you know, a couple hundred views. And, um, and I noticed that you know, when I talked about narcissists, I got a lot of views um, because my approach to talking about narcissism was connected to my own understanding and experience um, with codependency or SLDD. And, there was this one video, um, which the video you're talking about is uh, don't take the mask off a covert narcissist, just run. Um, it's got three and a half million views. Um, it came right after this major mind-blowing um, breakthrough in my own understanding of my SLDD. And I, and I like to share with you this story because I think uh, people will relate not only to the story, but on the video. As I talked about earlier, my understanding of codependency or self-love deficit disorder skyrocketed when I was able to identify that it was created by my family. And I was able to identify and create theory to explain that, you know, in any given family where you're raised by a codependent and a narcissist, there are going to be siblings. Um, and there is a high 90s probability, 90% probability, and I, and I, have, no one has been able to disprove that to me yet. Um, that if you have a narcissistic parent and a, and a codependent parent, you're going to be one or the other. And at about the time my mom was dying, and, and I write about this in my book, in my first chapter of Human Matter, um, all of a sudden, because my mom was the, the strong codependent that kept the family together because she, she wanted us to love each other and this, that, and the other. And 
she she uh, had cancer and and she was giving away all her jewelry and gold and she had a lot. Yeah, my mom was a little bit on the glitzy side, and I was the only kid who valued her life and the relationship while she was alive more than any material object. So I said, you know what, I'll just wait. I'm in no hurry. Where what I didn't realize was everyone behind the scenes was making deals with my dad who would distribute thousands of dollars of, of diamonds and gold. And um, and there was something my mom offered me and I, I didn't want to ask for it until she had passed because it didn't. And when she passed, um, I realized my dad was going to give me nothing. My dad is a pathological narcissist who I basically confronted about his selfishness, his arrogance. And as everyone knows, if you do that to a narcissist, there is not a good outcome. And that was about the end of our relationship. And I didn't get anything. And yet I was the, the family's codependent. I took care of my parents. I took care of my siblings. And everyone, every SLD has the same story. And I started to realize that every time I would confront someone, because I, I am what I, um, I, I classify SLDD or codependency um, um, in personality types. And I, I'm not going to go over those now, but I was the active SLD or the active codependent that was, you know, assertive and, you know, and tried to control people, but couldn't. And I would try to hold people accountable and confront them about lying and cheating. And they were so good at pushing my buttons, I would lose my temper. And there's, and I, having anger problems back then, um, confront them and there would be arguments and I would like, you know, feel cheated and lied. And then they would say to me, you know, this is exactly why dad didn't give you the money. Look at you. You're such a blah, blah, blah. You're, you have, you have mental problems. No one likes you. And then I would like lose it. And, and, and it hit me and all of this anger and rage of like injustice. My whole life, I just tried to do the right thing. And the people that were liars and cheaters were taking everything. It hit me in this moment that I was trying to uncover out, take the disguise off of all of these narcissists. And it was that action that compelled them to try to destroy me because like any other covert narcissist or sociopath, they survive by pretending to be nice and likable. And they, um, manipulate that into um, a job, um, into a personality type that makes people like them. And if you should try to take that away from them, they will do anything they can to hurt you. And I was using all of my very refined efforts, just dysfunctional, to try to out to expose them. I had this evidence and that evidence and what I was doing was I was giving them ammunition to try to destroy me. And it hit me. I am 
And and I and it, this is one that the saying by George Bernard Shaw: "Don't wrestle with pigs; you're going to get dirty." And besides, the pig. And this is when I realized it was my fight that justified the narcissist harm. They were able to push my buttons to get me to be mad, angry, and and then use that. And this moment where I realized the only way that I can ever protect myself, and, and I, I have air quotes here, I fight back, is to not be emotionally antagonized, not try to get something from someone who will not give it to me, to understand that they have every reason in the world to do anything to protect their reputation. And then that's when I just stopped. I just realized how futile it was to try to prove the narcissist is bad or wrong, to try to catch them, to try to exact justice, that all I was doing was making it worse for me. And they using that George Bernard Shaw thing, they were getting me to wrestle with them. And they were these professional wrestlers, like the pig in the saying, love to get dirty. And so in this video, I talk about many things, but I talk about the worst thing you can do is fight. Because would you fight a professional boxer because he took your money? Would you put on boxing gloves? <laughs> no, you get your butt kicked. And and the fighting itself will destroy you. You have to come to terms with it. They cannot be you cannot beat them. You just have to run, take you know, take your licking, um, find a way to get over what you lost or what was stolen, and start your life over again. And that idea of the fight causing more harm than good um, really caught the world's interest. And and from that, I was able to, just my personal understanding, I was able to grow to the next level and the next level to further um, talk about the different elements of how to get better, which is not to fight or argue, but is to get out. So uh, that video, which we'll have in our uh, show notes, a link to that video specifically, if people want to just go right to uh, the channel really caught on like wild uh, wildfire. Um, you know, you've had books, uh, you've had uh, you know courses, and and now you have something called uh, Fifty Shades of Pathological Narcissism. It's an eighteen-hour series, and I think that's coming out soon, or is it already out? No, no, that's that's, oh, that's out. out. So, so tell us yeah. a little bit a little bit about that. You know, it's an interesting uh, question because. I owe so much of my success on YouTube um, at talking about narcissism and helping people. But I just, after a while, I just got tired of it because I wanted to talk about what to do and how to heal. And so I made a pledge to myself. I'm just going to talk about self-love deficit disorder and my and how to overcome it through self-love recovery. And um, a colleague of mine in Australia said, People really want to hear you talk more about narcissism. And she, and she twisted my arm, and it wasn't a very hard twist. And I decided this will be the last time I, I, I do a presentation on narcissism, and I'm going to do it 
as good as possible. And so it went from a six-hour, one-day webinar to a a three-day, 18-hour webinar because I wanted people to understand narcissism from the perspective of what it really is, how it impacts you, so that you can have that information become healthier and stronger and more resistant, either if you're in the relationship or outside. And the first part is everything you need to know about narcissism, narcissistic people, and what they do to pull you in, gaslighting, etc. The second part, six hours of information, is what is what happens between the narcissist and the SLD and the codependent that allows the narcissist to entrap a person. What do they do, and what does the uh, and what is going on with the codependent? And the third is the solutions, the tools, and the techniques to extricate yourself from these relationships, to solve the problem in order to move beyond the narcissistically abusive. So before we end off our show here today, uh, tell everyone uh, what you're up to right now, where they can reach you, everything, your Instagrams, your Twitters, Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, we are now, uh, my company, Self Love Recovery Institute, is um, we were doing um, intensive uh, weekend retreats. We brought those back. So we're doing those. And if anyone's interested in that, or my uh, full length educational seminars, or wanting to um, 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 see me um, get psychotherapy from me, or anything um, that I, um, I do or promote. Um, just go to the website, selfloverecovery.com. And with regard to what am I doing now, I am completely rewriting The Human Magnet Syndrome. The second book is so different from the first book because five years is a long time for me to figure out a lot of stuff. And and so now I'm going to rewrite that. And I'm hoping that that version will be done in three months. And then I'm doing tons of other stuff. <laughs> so, but thank you for asking. <laughs> You're welcome. So, Ross Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here with myself and the audience today. We can't, we can't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge. So, really, just a big, big, big thank you. Oh, you know what? You know, Brandon, I knew that as soon as I talked to you before the show that you and I were going to get along. I think you're doing a fantastic job, and hats off to you, uh, to you and your community. And just keep up that really good work. And thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you very much. And from myself and Ross Rosenberg, we hope you have a good night.